shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Mortals do not know the way to it, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed out as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The chrysolite of Ethiopia cannot compare with it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where, do, where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees over the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned out the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to humankind, truly the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, is understanding. Thank you. Ah, let us pray. Oops. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. You know, I don't think that we can do a series that begins with unraveling, like we're doing now, without talking about Job, who is perhaps, in our scriptures, in our history, the ultimate story of a life that has unraveled. I mean, this is a man who lost everything, and I mean everything, except three friends. And these three friends came to comfort him? I don't know. They sat with him for several days. They were, they started out well. They did. And then they had to talk. It was not a good idea. Just not. Just because what they ended up doing wasn't so much comfort as justification. These three friends, in their own discomfort at what they were witnessing, felt the need to explain Job's suffering to him in ways that kept them safe, because they explained it all in ways that suggested that humans have some level of control, that it must somehow have all been Job's fault, because things weren't going well for him. Now, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that Job was not a real person. The story isn't, isn't a 
like reporting of something that actually happened to one particular guy at one particular moment in history. It doesn't work that way. Job is an archetype. He and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the story is not told, and it is certainly not canonized in our scripture, because it happened, but because it happens all the time. The story is told because it holds up a mirror to us. It's sort of like the prophets in that particular way. This story reflects back to us the reality of human suffering and the ways that we try to make sense of it and thereby to make sense of God. The conversations, as they are written out over chapters upon chapters, make us think, or at least they're supposed to make us think. They're inviting us to think. And they're inviting us to recognize ourselves, to listen for our own voices spelled out in the words that are printed on the page. We are called to listen for when the words that are being spoken in those moments make sense, when they seem to express our own views with a few centuries, millennia remove. When is it that we hear our own thought process being given voice by any of Job's friends? And we see them spelling out our own ways of seeing God moving in this world, even when the world seems to be unraveling. Stories like this aren't simply told for our entertainment. This wasn't just stuff that was supposed to keep us amused around a campfire late at night. But they are told and included in scripture to help us remain uncomfortable enough that we aren't tempted by complacency, that we aren't tempted to mistake our interpretations of God for God's own self in this world, to mistake what is for what must be and thereby justify the status quo. We are given here an opportunity to explore whether our beliefs are serving to maintain our own human ideas or whether they are giving us ways of exploring how God is moving in this world and around us. Because our Bible is not merely a set of histories passing along a static set of rules and understandings. Stories like the story of Job call us into conversation. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar call us into conversation. Jesus, on a regular basis, calls us into conversation to allow these ancient stories to shift our understandings of the daily realities, the societal expectations that we live and that we know and that we justify and that we accept as what must be because it is all that we have ever known. We are called to allow these very familiar stories to accompany us every bit as much as Job's friends accompanied him accompany us into the times when everything seems to be falling apart and everything we thought we had known gets called into question. How do the responses of Job's friends in this story or of the Pharisees in the Gospels or of Abraham or Moses in the Torah show what it is that they value, show what it is that they prioritize, show what it is that's really important to them? And as we listen to how these stories play out, 
as we hear our own questions and ideas echoing in the words of these ancient stories, where do we see our own priorities, and what do we learn about ourselves? Job's friends gather near him in the shadow of his grief, but when he cries out in the pain of it all, of having lost everything, his home, his livelihood, his family, his wife, his children, they cannot hear his feelings without rebuking him, tone-policing him, making his grief palatable to their comfort levels. Job's friends chide him, from their places of knowledge and experience, which do not include anything that Job has just gone through. And some might call what they have to say, what they bring to the table, wisdom. For these are people who know how things work, and they seem the sort of people that others might turn to for advice. All of their study, all of their time in this world have pointed them towards certain answers that give meaning to their lives. But is it wisdom, the story asks us, to try to put new experiences in old boxes? Or, in another parable, new wine in old wineskins? Job's friends sit with him in his grief, but one has to wonder if it is Job himself whom they consider when they pour forth all of their understandings of God, which they call wisdom, or whether they speak to comfort themselves and to find footing in an unraveled life as it plays out before them. It's a very human thing to do, and I suspect that we have all known such responses. Indeed, I suspect many of us have given such responses when we don't know what else to say. The platitudes that we put forth to try to give meaning to the unbearable moments. The words that we speak when the silence becomes too much, too uncomfortable. Like Job's friends in these moments, we show our own priorities, for better or for worse, as we seek to situate ourselves in the instability of situations that remind us of our own lack of control, that show us clearly the precarity of this world. But this story isn't just about how each of us relates to the bereaved individuals in our lives. How we relate to Job is how we relate to all of the uncomfortable situations to which we bear witness to all of the oppressed communities that are crying out in their own pain. When we bring our knowledge, which is based in our experience, and imagine that it is universal wisdom, then we're just really showing where it is that our particular priorities lie. I read an article this week, sort of floating around Facebook, some of you may have seen it, um, and it got cut into a meme, um, but the original was from a post by Erna Kim Hackett. Beautiful article that she wrote about theology in our current culture. And the part that got clipped that I saw noted quite rightly that our culture suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. This is when I wish you weren't all muted because that was worth a laugh. We are suffering from a bad case of Disney princess theology, which tells us when we read the scriptures that we are the princess in every story. And when there is no princess, no hero, we hold the story at arm's length and we become the omniscient narrator. Sort of what happens with Job. 
But when we are always Rapunzel and never the witch, then we never acknowledge the role that vengeance has played in our own lives or the ways that we hold on too tight to the things that we need or the ways that we prioritize our own comfort over the lives of those whom we profess to love. When we are always Cinderella and never the stepmother, then the only unraveling that matters is our own. The only story that ever matters is our own. And we never have to wonder why it is that the sisters were willing to maim themselves for the sake of possibly becoming queen, or whether we might make a similar choice were it put before us in our own lives. Sorry, Disney didn't include the maim part, but it's part of the original version of Cinderella. I hope you've all read that. When we do not see, in stories like Job, the ways that we are Eliphaz, who blames the victim, the ways that we are Bildad, who infantilizes Job and tries to turn the whole thing into a teachable moment, the ways that we are Zophar, who is so caught up in the world as it is that he cannot possibly see the world as it could be, then we miss the true wisdom of these stories, the wisdom that stretches beyond all of the knowledge and experience that we bring to the table. It is Job himself, the one who is most devastated, the one who should not have to be talking right now, the one who should not have to be teaching in this moment. It is Job who insists on the real wisdom of this time. Job who sits in his desolation and who is still aware mostly of what it is that he doesn't know. It is Job who is aware that all of his understanding and all of his experiences are just the tiniest fraction of a larger picture. For human knowledge can provide food for the body. Human knowledge can bring jewels and precious metals to light. The whole section right before this is about how all of those jewels get mined. The human knowledge, just like human speech, simply shows forth what it is that we value. For wisdom is not that which we dig out and refine and cut to our tastes and set into refined metals to decorate our lives or to de declare our greater worth. Precious gems and metals are, after all, just symbols of status, given worth in human systems and human valuation, but by themselves, just chemical compounds and crystalline structures. And it takes wisdom, not knowledge, and not experience, to recognize that. It takes wisdom to remember that it is not simply in our own human structures that we find God. Wisdom is, in not, is not in molding our understandings of the world in ways that advantage and universalize our personal experiences and suggest that how we have lived is a model for how everyone around us should also live, that the world is therefore exactly as it should be, as God has ordained it to be. For wisdom, unlike knowledge, is not of human creation, and it cannot be possessed any more than the wind or the thunderbolt or the trust that we place in that which is bigger than all of our human notions of importance or causality or sin. 
As much as his friends are trying to find answers to the question of why Job's life has unraveled so completely, Job himself sits in the desolation, seeking questions. Questions that will give him a glimpse into something that he will spend a lifetime pondering, into something that will be more valuable and certainly more costly than any jewel the humanity has ever known. Job is seeking what it might look like to trust when all has been lost, to engage with a God who is not made in humankind's image and who does not follow humanity's rules of fair play. When all is unraveling, it is tempting indeed to hold on to what we know, to cling to all that we have experienced, to look to that which we have valued as being durable and inherently worthy, as God-given blessings that will never fade. When all is unraveling, it is easy to assume that God thinks just like we do, that our priorities, which have created the world as it is and as we know it, are necessary and right and God-given, that those who have the jewels of our time, whatever they may look like, those are the blessed, while those who lose them, the Job among us, well, we often wind up sounding like those well-intentioned friends when it comes to the people who are Job in this world. When all is unraveling, what we cling to, what we prioritize, our knowledge and our experiences, our valuables, our certainty, these show forth our vision of God and of all of the things that God has made. But even when all is unraveling, these things remain. The deepest patterns of God's creation, of wind and water. The creative spirit that swirls and brings forth life. The refusal of evil, even in its most well-intentioned forms. And wisdom is found when we seek these out even if doing so unravels all of our priorities. Thanks be to God. Amen.